We are uh, going to continue our series on heads of lettuce this morning. We're going to push forward with our series. If you brought your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up right now to the book of Hebrews. If you don't bring a Bible, you can download the app uh, Version as well. It's a, it's a free app that you can get hundreds of translations of the Bibles through. And then you always have the scriptures in your pocket, which is kind of cool. Heads of lettuce, because of what Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection, the author of Hebrews tells us to be motivated, to be moving, to let us, is his cry, that we should have let us mentalities. We have to live the kind of life that Christ lived because of what he has accomplished. And so this week, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, Hebrews, by the way, is at the very end of your scriptures. It's just a couple of books shy to the end, so go to the end if you haven't difficulty finding it. Hebrews 23, therefore let us, let's say that together, let us, let us, let's be motivated, let us be motivated, let's have this mentality, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you again for this gorgeous day that we can be outside, worshiping your name, Father, within this community, uh, teaching your word, Father, within this community, I pray. Uh, that someone might just poke their head outside their door and listen. I'll come on over, Father, and hear your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds, as always, Father, to receive your word this morning and give me words to speak. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so if you were with us two weeks ago, you might remember that chapter 10 of Hebrews is really the climax of the letter. The, The author of Hebrews has been laboring to get to this point in the letter. He's ascending a really theologically complicated mountain in a lot of ways, and here in chapter 10, we kind of reach the summit. Hebrews states its purpose at the very beginning, and so what is Hebrews really all about? He says in chapter 2, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard it. God also testifies to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. All right, so this, this world to come, this new heaven and this new earth where all of the crying and the pain and the mourning that we all experience on a day-to-day basis, all of those things are done away with, right? There are no more arsenals to, to light churches on fire. There are more, no more divorces to take place to tear families apart. There are no more illnesses and cancer to destroy the human body and to create this decay. And he hasn't given this future earth into the hands of of angels, but into the hands of his son, Jesus Christ. As chapter 2 further goes on to explain. But notice that this world to come has already begun through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he says. So it's not like this future longing only is in the future, but the, the, the future world has become our present reality through the Holy Spirit. And so the gifts that we portray through the Holy Spirit, the love that we are able to give to one another, the increased patience, the peace, the joy, the kindness, all the fruit of the Holy Spirit living itself out in our lives, this is the first fruit of the future world manifesting itself in our lives right now. We have become the future. And that future world is not just this distant thing, but it has made itself known and manifest right here, here and now. We can taste that world that God has promised. And so everything in chapter 2 between chapter 2 and chapter 10 is about reaffirming this promise. That salvation has come, and it's not just this future reality, but it has made itself known right here, and we can be changed right here because the future is a present reality made known through the Spirit of God. 
And because this is the case, what type of lives ought we then to live? And so he goes on to chapter 10, as you were with us two weeks ago. He says, first, you need to know that you are cleansed. That any guilt that you might have from a life lived wrongly has been washed away. There is no more guilt. It has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. You are cleansed. Jesus has accomplished your forgiveness. He has brought that new creation where wholeness and reconciliation and redemption and restoration are the way of life. And he has brought it forth into our present reality. This is a truth, and it is a truth that can be made known in you. You are cleansed. You can find that message online if you were not with us two weeks ago. Second, and this is our message for today, we should know that we are the people of hope. Because of what Christ has accomplished, we are the people of hope. Man, you know, I've had so many conversations this week. Really hard conversations this week, yeah, man, about an arson that took place in our building. And I think we are a people that need a lot of hope. Why would someone want to do this to us? But not only that, but but marriages that are falling apart and and people struggling with their mortgage, and people struggling to, to survive through this, this world that is hard at times. And people who are, who are uh, suffering through horrible illnesses, and they're seeing their, their flesh decay. Man, we need hope, do we not? And I don't know what's going on in your situation, but I bet that there is a time in your life where you have needed hope. You've needed to look past the current situation and say, there's got to be something beyond this. There's got to be something further beyond this that is going to allow me to sustain through this horrible situation I find myself in. Did you guys know that hope is a psychological necessity? Psychologists will tell you that people who are depressed, though they may not use the actual words, they are people who fundamentally lack hope. That is why depression exists in so many people is because they fundamentally lack hope. They can't see a different outcome to their current situation. They can't look past their present circumstances into a better time. And if they can look past their circumstances into the future, they don't like what they see. They they don't see a restored world. They don't see a restored situation. They see a hurtful situation. So they drag that future, that hurtful future, back into their own present reality. And so they continue that cycle of depression and despair, and they cannot climb out of it. So hope is a psychological necessity. And part of the mystery of functioning rightly as a human person is to be a person of hope. Psychologists know this, so they tell us that hopeful people share four core beliefs. You can find this in all sorts of psychological textbooks. Four core beliefs that hopeful people share. First, the future will be better than the present. You just have to believe that. You have to trust that it's going to be different. It's going to be better. Second, that I have the power to make it so. I can make my future better than my present situation. Three, there are many paths to my goals. And four, none of them is free of obstacles. This mentality was first developed in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Obviously, this was a situation where everyone needed hope. Everyone was lacking hope, and they were looking for hope, and they were wondering how to achieve it. And so James Adams, around the same time in the 1930s, he was the first person to speak about the American dream. And it's tied in closely to this idea that we need hope in the Great Depression, tied in closely that we need hope. He said that life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone without, with every opportunity for each according to their ability or their achievement. That if you have the ability and you have the talents and the gifts, then your future can be hopeful. And so we've been struck with this notion that the greatest life attainable is the richest life with the biggest house and the most money and the most toys. That's the American dream wrapped up in a nutshell. 
Prosperity through hard work is the ethos of the American way. And people from around the world have flocked to America hoping to just taste the American dream. They've left suffering and they've hopped on boats and they've crossed the ocean to come to America hoping that they could taste the American dream that promises a brilliant reward for hard work. And so what do they do? They get jobs and they begin to work hard. They pull up their bootstraps, they say, and they get to work for... They think that they have the power to make their future anything they want it to be. Any future is available simply if you work hard enough. That's what the American dream promises. The challenge which makes the American dream impossible to achieve, however, is that the sinful condition is never satisfied. Because as Americans began lifting themselves out of the Great Depression, the suburban life also began to develop. The life became, of suburbia, this reality of the American dream manifested in homes like this that we see around us and and cars that we drive. But the problem was that one day, you know, for instance, you would would pull into your your driveway and then you'd look over at the Smiths, who are your neighbor, and you realize that while you were gone at work, they got new siding put on their house. And their siding looks really awesome. And you look at your house and you're like, oh man, my my house looks kind of junky now. And then you'd look over at the Joneses, who are on the other side of you, and and you'd see that they got a new car. And then you look back at your car, which you were once content with, you're like, man, I just, it doesn't satisfy me anymore. I wish I had their new car. The future we long for never arrives because we're never satisfied with our current situation. Contentment becomes like a treadmill, and we keep running the race like a rat or a hamster in a wheel. We work harder than ever before to move forward, but we realize in time that we haven't actually achieved anything of true lasting value. And so we go back to working harder to achieve this greater future, but then we, we, don't, we don't think that we've accomplished anything of lasting value. So what do we do? We go back to working harder, and then we ended up in this cycle. In her book, The Epidemic of Mental Illness, Marsha Engel states that in June 2013, a Gallup poll revealed that 70% of Americans hate their jobs or have checked out of them. of Americans. Life may or may not be any worse than it was a generation ago, but our belief in progress, for example, the American dream, has increased expectations that life should be more satisfying, resulting in mass disappointment. For many of us, society has become increasingly alienating, isolating, and insane. And earning a buck means more degrees, compliance, and inauthenticity. So we want to rebel. However, many of us feel hopeless about the possibility of either our own escape from societal oppression or that political activism can create societal change. Try as we might to pay attention, to adapt, to adjust, to comply with our alienating jobs, our boring schools, and the sterile society, our humanity gets in the way and we become anxious, depressed, and dysfunctional. So the twisted irony is that the world and its psychologists tell us that hope lies in our ability to make a better life for ourselves. But the felt reality is that we can't, and therefore we become hopeless, and we become trapped in the cycle of despair. I think we need a re-envisioning of hope. I I think the way that America and and our capitalistic society has told us to to make our own hope and to climb ourselves out of the the depression and the suffering that we find ourselves, it isn't working. We need a re-envisioning of hope. I think we need a biblical envisioning of hope. And what you'll find is that when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not like the world's hope. It's fundamentally different than the world's hope. 
You see, the world might have these fanciful longings that your future can be better than your present situation. But they have nothing to secure that longing to other than their own abilities to achieve it. And that's where the problem comes in. But biblical hope is not a matter of temperament. It's not about our own desires for a better future. Biblical hope is not conditioned by prevailing circumstances, right? Statistically, it would be easier, for instance, for a man to achieve the American dream than it would be for a woman. But that's not what the biblical hope is anchored in either. Biblical hope is not anchored to our own abilities like the American dream model of hope suggests, but rather biblical hope is about the faithfulness of God. It's about who God is, fundamentally about who God is and his faithfulness to us. And only because he is faithful do we have a hope that is lasting and secure through the hardest times. You know, there's nothing in Abraham's situation that would justify him to have hope in any way that the world speaks of it. He was a 90-year-old man with a 90-year-old wife, and uh, he was not able to have children. And he longed for children. He wanted a better future. He wanted a future that was different than his present circumstances because he was fearful that his possessions, his inheritance, was going to go to Eleazar, some servant of a servant. He wanted a better future for his world, and so God makes this promise. And of course, promise is tied up into God's faithfulness. He makes a promise, and so he places his hope, not, as in, not in his own expectations, not in his own abilities, because he had no abilities. He had no expectations that would, that would achieve for him the goal. A 90-year-old giving birth? Doesn't make sense. So he had no expectations that could achieve for him what he wanted. But Paul tells us that against all hope, against all worldly expectations, Abraham, in hope, believed, he believed, he believed that God would be faithful to his promise, and so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. His wife did have a child at the age of 90. In other words, biblical hope is always anchored in a promise, which is always tied to the faithfulness of a person. And we see this in Hebrews 10, right? We started, therefore, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And why? Because he who promised it is faithful. That is why we hold on to the hope we have, because he who promised it is faithful. This world unswervingly is kroteo in the Greek, and it means a force or a strength. It's used to indicate the holding fast against foes or fighting against an army or remaining secure against a storm like an anchor would. And this isn't the first time the author spoke of hope and holding on to it through storms and wars because God is faithful. Remember that the therefore, if you were with us two weeks ago, therefore always directs us backwards into Scripture. And so in this case, it directs us back to chapter 6, in particular verse 13 through 20, and you can join me there. Chapter 6, 13 through 20 says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to their heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as a what? An anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. 
he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews is intent on, provide, on proving that God is faithful to his promise. That's really what he's trying to uh, provide here is, a, is an explanation that God will be faithful to his promise. God has promised a day when pain and suffering and sorrow and mourning, they will all be done away with. Depression and anxiety and arsons and all of these things, they will be done away with. And the cup of that day that is full of that day has already begun to tip over. It has already begun to be poured out on his people through the work of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. God is faithful. He will see that day come to fruition that he has promised. And he has already given us a taste of what that day might look like. And so he reminds his readers of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. God can be trusted. So one would think that, man, isn't his word just enough? I mean, God said that he can be trusted. God has made this promise. Shouldn't his word just be enough? But to prove how serious he was about the faithfulness, he also confirmed it with an oath. And he made this oath upon himself. Has anyone ever made a, a pinky promise before? I bet you all the kids over at the playgrounds have made pinky promises. Right? You, you make a promise, but you know, you're like, I don't know, guys. The promise just doesn't seem to hold up. And so what do you do? You hold out your pinky. Do you, do you pinky promise? Really, do you pinky promise that you will do what you've said you will do? It's putting this weight to the promise being made. Of course, I, I am going to pinky promise. This is an unbreakable vow. I'm going to pinky promise you that I will do what I have just said I will do. Two things confirm that I am trustworthy. My word and my pinky. Or it's like someone saying that, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. If I don't do what I have said I will just do, may my own mother be cursed for eternity. Man, that's a weighty promise, don't you guys think? Those are some hard words to, to, to say, and that's a hard promise to make, but you're making this double promise. Not only am I promising with my own words, but I'm also making an oath upon my own mother's grave that I will be faithful to what I have said I will be faithful to. This is really what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's saying God has not only said he will be faithful to his promise, but he is making a pinky promise. And because there is nothing greater in all of the world to make a promise on, he's making the promise upon himself. That if I do not follow through with my promise, may I be condemned. May all the world see me as a liar. But my friends, I'm not a liar. You see what the author of Hebrews is doing? God is faithful. God has said what he will do and he will accomplish it. That world that he has promised in the future will become a reality. God is faithful. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which, is it, is, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. God is faithful. We ought to be encouraged. That day will become a reality. We ought to be encouraged. God is faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have this hope like an anchor. The author continues, For the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so because God is faithful, let us have hope, and not just hope, but hope like an anchor. Hope like an anchor. You know, hope is not just blind optimism. It's not just this fanciful feeling that maybe the future will be better than the present. It's not blind optimism. 
That type of place really had no place in the life of this author's audience. That type of hope had no place in the life of a Christian living in the first century. Everything they saw and experienced told them exactly the opposite. There was no better future in front of them. In 64 AD, Nero began severe persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And so, recipients of this letter grew up watching their mentors and their, their teachers and their parents and their friends being carted away, carted away by the Romans. And anybody who would not bow down to an image of Nero and bow down and kiss his image and proclaim him as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, anyone who was not willing to do that would have their head chopped off. That was the future they were promised for trusting in God. That was the future they were promised for trusting in Jesus. You want to claim to be a follower of Jesus? Well, get ready, because your head's going to the chopping block. That is what they expected of their future. And not only that, but two years later, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem, beginning a war that would end with the utter and total destruction of Jerusalem. There was no better future for them. They could not look into the future and say, well, maybe the future will just be better for us. For 300 years, this persecution prevailed. Life would not get better for Christians for 300 years. There was nothing better to look forward to. Hope is not just blind optimism. And they knew this. And so the hope defined as optimism and a vague sense that things will just be okay, they had no place in their experience. And so if Christian faith is trusting and continually trusting in God, even through the most hard experiences in life, because we know that God has made this unbreakable vow, and he's made these promises confirmed doubly by not only his words, but by the oath made upon himself, then Christian hope is looking ahead to a time when according to those promises, because God is faithful, looking forward ahead to a time, according to those promises, when God will make the world over anew, completing what he has promised to do in Jesus Christ. It's not just blind optimism. We have hope like an anchor looking forward to a future world that has been drawn into our present. You see, hope is anchored in the, who God is and his faithfulness to follow through on what he has promised. And so we have hope because we know the end and we know the character and the strength of God. That is why we have hope. And that is why the world remains hopeless. Because the world cannot make a better future for themselves, but we know the faithfulness and the unbreakable, cha- unbreakable character of who God is, and we know him to be faithful. You know, we usually think of anchors as, uh, as being effective because they're heavy. At least that's what I thought. Anchors are heavy, and that's why they, they weigh the ship down. But an anchor isn't effective because it's heavy, because if, an anch- if a ship can't move when there's an anchor in the water, why can a ship move when the anchor is up at its side? The weight doesn't change the anchor. An anchor is only effective because at the bottom of the seabed, it grabs the dirt and it grabs the seabed or it grabs a rock and it holds on tightly. And so even as the storms come and the waves prevail and the, the, the tides drift the boat around, the boat, the boat stays secure because it is tied to an anchor which is tied to the seabed. And the reason anchors are needed is because the wind and the currents and the storms do persist. The, the fact that the author of Hebrews is telling us that we need an anchor means that life is going to throw us storms. And life is going to throw us curveballs. And life is going to be hard. And life is going to be challenging and full of disappointment. 
The fact that we need hope like an anchor means that we're going to need an anchor. We're going to need something to hold on to and that is going to be firmly attached to something greater than ourselves. An anchor is exactly what the people needed as they were persecuted. An anchor is exactly what they needed as they watched their parents being carted away by the Romans to get their heads chopped off. An anchor is exactly what they needed when they saw Jerusalem falling to the ground. An anchor is what you need if you are suffering through uh, the, the, the broken household of divorce. Or, or you're, you're, you're fighting constantly with your spouse and you're wondering if this is going to last. An anchor is exactly what you need if your life is, is uh, full of pain through, through disease and fear of surgery. Or you're wondering how you're going to pay your mortgage payment. And an anchor is exactly what you need. And it needs to be firmly secured in something solid that is going to sustain you through the storms of life. An anchor is exactly what you need. And we are given hope. Hope as an anchor. It's offered us. It serves as our anchor and it is attached to the space behind the curtain where Jesus has gone ahead of us on our behalf. The space behind the curtain was called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God was made to be manifest. It's where heaven and earth came together. It served as the space where God's presence was known and the high priest could enter this space one time a year to make atonement for the sins of his people. The high priest would go into this place and he would procure forgiveness for sins and the cleansing of sin for the people. And that is where our anchor is held secure, in the very presence of God. That is where our hope lies secure in the very presence of God. God holds our anchor. And if God is secure, then what does that mean for us? We are secure. Do you guys believe God to be secure? Then we are secure. If his promise of a restored future is made, then it is a trustworthy promise. Because he is faithful and this hope we have in any present circumstance is anchored to the God who is faithful to fulfill his promises. And this concluding statement that Jesus would be the high priest of the order of Melchizedek is a reference to Psalm 110. The author has already used this psalm several times, and he's going to use it a couple more times in Hebrews as well. In particular, in the chapter that we are reading right now, chapter 10. The lettuce passages all flow out of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, we talked about this two weeks ago, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The psalm is a description of all God through the Lord, who is in this case Jesus Christ, will put an end to the chaos and the hurt and the destruction and the suffering and the decay and the disease and the death and the anger and the sadness and the mourning and the crying and the pain that we all experience from time to time. He will put away to the authority of all of the death that is held over this current world. He's talking about a day that is to come when God's reign and his peace and his wholeness and his restoration will sweep over the whole world like the waters sweep over the sea. And so if you were with us two weeks ago, you might remember that the author of Hebrews is writing to a people in a very hopeless state. In a very hopeless state. He's trying to convince his readers that there is hope in a world that no longer has to suffer through this cycle. You long to be freed from your despair? Well, here's how you accomplish that. Well, day after day in their case, they had to go and they had to keep offering sacrifices. They were trapped in the cycle. 
Day after day, they had to go offer sacrifices, and every day they had to recognize their guilt. And so what did they do? They would go and they would offer another sacrifice. They would look another lamb in the eye. They would slit its throat. They would pour out its blood, and they would splash the blood against the altar. Day after day, they were reminded of their guilt. And so day after day, they had to keep going back and doing the same things over and over and over again, trapped in the cycle. Every day they had to go do this traumatic experience with no hope that it would ever end. That no hope that their life would ever be different. That no hope that this guilt would ever be washed away. Because they knew every single morning as they looked that lamb in the eye that they were still guilty. And we learned that is why they went through that process day after day. was to be reminded of their guilt. The smell of the blood on their hands. And the smell of the blood in their nostrils was a constant reminder that they were guilty. And that system actually never did anything to release them from the cycle of despair. They would look around at the way they were treating others and the way that they were treating them. And they would realize that this world is a really broken place. They'd realize that their hearts are really full of anger and really full of hatred. And because God had established enmity within them, we talk about that a lot, enmity meaning this feeling of hatred against their sinful nature, because God had put that in them, they realized that they were broken, they realized they were guilty, and so what did they do? They go back into the cycle. They would walk through the gates of Jerusalem, they'd see all these executions taking place, all these crucifixions and people hanging there, they'd see all these robbers and, and thieves and murderers and adulterers being hung on crosses, they'd see, man, this world is messed up. And then they'd... they'd uh, be eating dinner one day and someone would knock on the door and and some Roman guard would take their mom and their dad away and they'd drag them off to be executed. And they'd say, man, this world is messed up. Man, this world is hurting. Man, this world is broken. And then every spring they'd be called to go off to war. And they'd have to fight in these these battles for Roman's sake. For the sake and the glory of Rome, they'd be entrusted into this army and so they'd have to take these spears and they'd have to thrust them into their enemies' stomachs. And into their enemy's heart, and they look at the pain in the eyes as they did this, and they'd say, man, this world is full of pain, and this world is full of horror. Why is this world such a broken place? And they knew they were guilty. Because their conscience told them they were guilty. And they knew the world was broken, and they knew that they were a contributor to the brokenness of the world, because they saw it in the eyes of their enemies. They saw it in the eyes of the lambs. They saw it in the eyes of everyone they walked around as they treated poorly I live this world wrongly. I am not free from my guilt. I live this world wrongly. How do I escape this cycle? They always knew they were guilty. And they had to go back, offer their sacrifices so they could, for a temporary moment, be liberated from their guilt. That was all they had to lean on was a sacrificial system that never actually accomplished anything. And so day after day, year after year, they'd go back into the endless cycle We know we're broken. We feel it as our bodies decay. We feel it as we treat others wrongly. We feel it. God had put this as a gift within us. And there comes a time in every person's life when they wonder when it's going to end. When is the cycle of feeling guilty going to end? When am I going to find hope to be released from this burden within me? They wonder if there's any hope for a different tomorrow, or will this cycle of life giving way to death always prevail? You see, it's the cycle that causes the despair. It's the cycle that we're trapped in that causes the hopelessness. 
I have to do this thing every single day. Is there any end to it? Is there any change? Or am I just going to be trapped in this cycle for the rest of my life? Will my future be different than my present? Or am I going to be trapped in this cycle for the rest of my life? You know, when I first became a Christian, I went to work at a, at a camp up in northern Minnesota. That's a place where I really began to learn the gospel. My mom had attended this camp because when she was a little girl, the bus from the local church drove by her neighborhood and picked up any of the stray kids that wanted to go to camp for a week. And uh, so she hopped on one day. And she went up to camp and she learned the gospel. It's a really beautiful thing in a lot of ways. Uh, It was a free camp because a lot of these kids couldn't afford to go to camp. And so it was free and it still remains to be a free camp. You could only pay and you only needed to pay if you could afford it or if you wanted to. And so a lot of kids are there because their parents wanted a vacation for a week from their children. A free camp, get, get chi- free child care for a week, sure. I'll tell my kids whatever they want, I don't care. I'm going to get a free week away from my kids. So a lot of kids uh, were there because they grew up in really hard homes and their parents just didn't want to be with them for a week and they wanted a break. What this meant for the workers, though, was because it was a free camp, was that uh, the workers were completely voluntary. We knew as workers that we weren't going to be paid for the work that we did, that we were volunteering our time. I was signing up uh, the summer after um, I had first gone here. I was signing up to council. That's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be outside in nature and enjoy God's creation and swim in the lake and play the sports and disciple little kids. That's what I really wanted to do. That's what we all wanted to do. And so we all hoped... Right? We got all this blind optimism that they would put us as counselors so that we'd be able to do that. But no one wanted to work in the kitchen, right? Because if you worked in the kitchen, then you were trapped in do- in so indoors for 12 hours a day. You were working ind- independently with loud machines with small in a, in a room with small windows. You hardly breathed the outdoors, let alone played in it. But lo, that's where I was assigned. I was given the kitchen duty. And so my day began at 5.30 a.m. I had to prepare breakfast, I served it, I cleaned it up, and I began preparing lunch. I served it, and I cleaned it up. I'd have a two-hour break that afternoon. I'd get back by 4 p.m. to prep dinner, to serve it, to clean it up, to finish by 8, and I'd go to bed exhausted. I'd do it again the next day. And day after day, week after week, for eight weeks, I served in the kitchen. And that was my lot for the summer, knowing that at the end of my eight weeks uh, of volunteering that I would have nothing financially to show for it, really made that eight weeks really, really hard. It would have been okay if I was a counselor because it would have been fun, but working in the kitchen for eight weeks, having nothing at the end of my time to show for it, really made it hard. It made the days last even longer. And so day after day, nothing changed, right? Week after week, the same experience. I'd wake up dreading the day in front of me. And although I knew I was serving a worthy cause, I was young in my faith, and I pitied myself. Because all my friends were out there, and they were uh, playing, swimming in the lake and playing the games and enjoying God's creation, being outdoors, and here I was, trapped in the kitchen. And despair, you might imagine, began to creep in. Eight weeks of doing this is a long time for a 17-year-old. Except that there was one thing that kept me going. I was given a promise that at the end of eight weeks, it would end. I wouldn't have to do it anymore. I'd be able to leave. I'd be able to go home back to my life and I would be free. It was this hope anchored in that promise that kept me sane, 
and it kept me going every day. I knew what the end was going to be like. I knew what the end was going to be like. And every day as the end got closer, I began to realize that knowing the end would come allowed me to actually begin to cherish the present moment. Something strange began to happen. I knew what the end was going to be like, and so I was able to bring that future ending into my present circumstances and began to shape it and began to change it and began to transform it. I began to see this as a gift to serve the kids. Because I knew that the greater purpose of the camp was to bring these kids to Christ, and my role was huge in doing that. Providing them healthy meals and a safe place to learn about Jesus, and I was a part of that. And so knowing the future end, that it would eventually end, began to shape my perspective, because I knew at the end that I only had eight weeks to do this. And there's only so much you can do in eight weeks. There's only so much discipling that can be done in eight weeks. And so I knew I had to work hard to do what I needed to do in the eight weeks. And knowing the end began to change my present. That's what knowing the end did. But you know, the result of the world without a promised future hope anchored in a God of promise with a declared end is despair. The the world around us who is suffering and and wondering what tomorrow is going to bring and they don't have a hope anchored in a God of faithful promise is despair. It's hopelessness. Yesterday I officiated a funeral. And this man was kind and fun. He was full of zeal. He was hospitable and he was generous. He cared for his family and his neighbors and he desired to make the world in which he lived in the best place possible. He loved roller coasters and amusement parks. He loved to garden and to be outside. He loved hosting parties and being very active. But later in life he became a diabetic. And he lost one of his legs. And though he went through many prosthetic limbs, he never found anything that would be comfortable. And so he could no longer do the things that he loved so much in life. He lost the ability to garden. He lost the ability to ride the roller coasters. He couldn't host parties anymore. He couldn't even stand up. He couldn't care for the dogs, which he loved so desperately. And this man fell into great despair and great depression. Because I can imagine that every morning he woke up, he looked at his leg, and he was convinced that this was his lot in life. This was his lot. This is the world that he was going to live in until the day he died. This was what his world was going to be like. He looked down at his leg. He could not see a different future. And so he fell into despair, and he fell into depression. Nothing was going to change because he had lost his mobility. And over and over again, you live your life, and you work, and you work the routine. Over and over again, we live these lives and and we long for a different future, but is it ever going to end? Is the cycle ever going to stop? Is there a different future that we can rest secured in? Is there ever going to be hope for change? And the author of Hebrews comes along and he says, absolutely there will be hope because the cycle has been broken. You're not trapped in the cycle anymore. There is a future hope that has been promised and it has been brought back into our present circumstances. You don't have to be in despair. You do not have to be hopeless because the cycle has been broken. And I don't know what your current situation is in like right now. I don't don't know what despair or hopeless state you currently find yourself in, but you need to know that the cycle has been broken. 
that when the world looks at the at this future outside of Jesus Christ, they don't see a restored world. You know, you know what non-believers in Jesus Christ see? They see a grave for themselves. And they see blackness. Because there is no hope. But God has promised, and God is faithful, the author of Hebrews says, God is faithful to his promise that he has created a restored future, and not only is it in the future, but it has been brought into our present circumstance. The cycle has been broken. And so what is so beautiful about biblical hope is that it is formed from our past instances of God's faithfulness, right? God has been faithful in the past. We can trust that he'll be faithful in the future. But it's also directed towards God's future promise of a restored world. But that restored world also begins to shape our current perspective. The cycle has been broken, and that can change your current perspective about how you look at the world that you live in. God's future world where our hope lies has come forth into our present your deepest longings to be known and restored and redeemed, to have a purposeful existence, to be content and peaceful and loving. Your deep desire to be enveloped in a world of peace, it can begin to grow in you. And your present circumstances, whether they are, 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 are friendly or happy or suffering and terrible, God's future can begin in you, and it can begin to grow in you, and his peace and his love and his kindness can begin to grow in you because that is the world that he has promised, and he has brought it forth into our present. These are not just fanciful ideas of a future longing like all the world has to lean on. This is a present reality shaped by God's future. And so let us, the author of Hebrews tells us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we possess because he who promised it he is faithful amen Amen. god we thank you for an opportunity father not only to look at the brokenness of the world in which we live in because that is just a reality that we all suffer through father we we live in a in a broken world and we all experience it father but the cycle of brokenness has ended because jesus christ has accomplished, Father, what he has come to accomplish. And he has gone through the inner sanctuary, Father, and he has brought our hope with him, and he has secured it in the very presence of God. So, Father, our hope is not just some fanciful longing for a different future, Father. It is anchored and secured in you, and you are trustworthy, and you are faithful to your promises. And so, God, let us be the great people of hope that you have called us to be. That even if we suffer through despair, and the, the fact that we need an anchor, Father, means that we're going to suffer through despair. Let us not make us depressed, Father, but we know that we have hope like an anchor. And that you have done a good work in us, Father, and you have brought your future reality of a restored world into our present. So let us rely and remember that this morning. Amen.